It's past midnight. It's quiet and dark here on the west coast of America. I'm going to begin reading to you a story, a story set the long ago and the far away, set in India in the 1970s. It's called The Hyenas, and it begins as follows. Part one, Ashok. Chapter one. They lie asleep under the stiff sloping boughs of the sal trees. Their black snouts lay beneath their heavy black paws or half in the dirt. Their legs are curled up against their flanks. Their tails shift in dream. Gra the grass is thick and stiff around them. Above them, the flies form a haze. One yawns and stretches and goes back to sleep. The whiskers of another, flecked with dry crystals of blood, quiver in a cross breeze, the teeth a moment visible, the tongue sucking the palate with a sound like a dog's. Then the bristled back of another, resting close by, begins to rattle and to heave. The heaving lasts only a short time. The throat gurgles, the lips flinch and curl back from the gray gums. Then the animal goes abruptly still. Foam rises from the nostrils, pink, frothing, delicately chiseled. Another wakes, smelling the breezes, the ears cocked, alert, its eyes opaque, glazed, watchful. Another wakes, then another. Soon all are up. Some sniff the dead animal. Others walk back and forth restlessly, pawing at it, at the ground, at tree roots. One sits next to the gray, strugged body in the wet heat, its ears turned back, its fur standing. It curves its mouth into a cylinder and begins to howl. Three scatter, loping into the forest. One or two glance after them, uncertain it seems to follow. The female, her teats shudder, continues to howl. You rise to your knees and raise the barrel of your rifle to her as she bays to the invisible sun. India, Lucknow, Dawn. The remains of the Farhat Baksh are touched by the light of the rising sun. Beams of light creep into the ruins like stray cats. They lie on exposed pieces of wall and doorways on thresholds, in window frames, on broken columns. They enter the cellars. They pause over the cracked flooring and settle in the corners. They tread stairways up to useless porches. They poke into vanquished boudoirs. They sweep the shadows from the throne room. They ascend the throne. Shokji, 
Leave Vantel alone. His father's turban stands between him and the sun. He cannot see his face. You don't know your own strength. You'll hurt him. His brother escapes his grip and runs off laughing. His mother passes his father some lumpy and rice. She sits curled in her sari, her deeply shadowed eyes flickering toward Mantal, then toward Ashok. I wish you hadn't taken us out so far. There are animals to worry about. Ashok gets up and walks toward a stand of trees beneath which his younger brother is looking back at him. Where are you going, Shochi? I want to go exploring. Well, don't go far. He walks up to his brother. Let's go hunt. Ashok enters the small copse, then looks back. For a moment, his brother does nothing but looks at him warily. Come on. Then Montal follows after him to the shadows of what is not a stand of trees at all, but a finger of the entangled forest that surrounds them. And they go deeper into it. The greater palace of Chatar Manzil is unfolded to daylight. Its vaults and lanterns, the precise and relentless filigree, are filled with and warmed, scanned and opened by the light like a brightening garden. Its huge dome appears, the great shadow slanting down toward the west where the blue night parades in retreat. The walls with their elaborate embroidery of stone are limbed by touches of yellow and white against the evaporating chiaroscuro. Thin shafts of porphyry and malachite deepen their sleek darkness. The glint of a crescent moon in gold appears above a lintel like the curve of a scimitar raised in a gesture of defiance. Or is it perhaps an assertion, a desperate assertion, against the procession of day, resurgent dawn, the august crushing wheels of the sun in conquest harshly revolving? Disturbed in her sleep, caught off guard in a dream, she moves away from her husband toward the brightening window. The sheet slackens along her thigh as Ashok bends near her, but he does not follow her so far and stops at the center of the bed. Her eyes flicker like a pair of smudged flames. Several moments pass in which she does not move. The sun appears above the rim of the horizon basking the spring morning in the full splendor of day before her eyes serenely and for a moment unseeing open. By the flank of the greater palace, though sundered from it by a thin swathe of light, rises the once observer for the observed all observers and now a flourishing bank, the ancient observatory, the Nasa Udbin Haidar. The terrace where the great astronomers stood and outweighted the night, calculating the precession of Mars, the transits of Venus, and the baffling rhythms of comet and eclipse, is softly bathed in the day's advance, the sun's veiling of the stars with his own overflowing radiance. At the locked and bolted entrance, early risers are passing, on bicycle or on foot, some bearing a cart or cartless bearing the day's load on their own shoulders, some disregarding the place of rupees in the starlight, both too dear for them, impossibly dear, belonging to another world, a world without them altogether. Some, however, do pause and stare and ponder and wait and wait more and wait longer. The banks do not open at dawn 
and observatories closed. They've been gone too long and have gone too far. Ashok stops near the base of an overarching tree and looks around him half beseechingly as though the forest might take pity and freely reveal the way back. It is all darkness around them, all rich, fertile emptiness, empty fertility, half darkness, forest and meadow. He and his brother have been gone, seen, have, have seen no one in a long time. Nantal is fidgeting, tired, complaining. The plan has not worked. Instead of losing his brother in the dense jungle, Ashok has only gotten them both lost. He remembers his mother's worries about the animals and glances around him nervously, not far back, where a copse opened out into a small, abandoned field. He'd seen something that looked like a dog. It gazed after them from the edge of the field a long while before pulling back into the brush and disappearing. Ashok suddenly takes a wild guess and, aiming at a distant patch of light, plunges back into the wood. This way. It's not far. Chokchi, wait for me. Hurry up. Filled with strange thoughts, a confused resentment, a settling fear, he stumbles blindly ahead toward the light in the forest. The residence lies just beyond, patiently dribbled with glimmerings. Much of the residence will not be, and in fact is never redeemed to light. Its shame is left stark, cold, webbed with shadow, ghostly, blooded, phantasmal, haunted by the echoes of the famous mutiny which began and which brutally ended there. The slaughter of British and Hindustani has perhaps not ended in the wreckage. The smell of powder lingers for those with acute enough nostrils, the taste of the sword for him with a fine enough tongue. But for most it is simply a wood and stone bit of landed shipwreck, the hostage of a past remote and hardly accessible, and most an amulet against further invasion and seizure, maybe a kind of hope, at worst a relict, whose miracle has fled, a talisman whose magic spirits after the dawn is nightly secret before expiring. The figure is dim as he walks with a slight stoop out of the countryside. In his hand is a rifle, rusty and old, battered. Its mechanism must be broken, though he is using it, for he is using the gun as a walking stick, a kind of crutch leaning against it occasionally, jamming the stock carelessly into the dirt road. He would not be particularly remarkable, except that his clothes are in even worse condition than that of the poorest. He is almost in rags, and in fact a torn remnant of cloth swathes his head, hiding his face to the eyes. A doughty falls from his hips, his chest and feet are bare. Sometimes he starts singing to himself, but the sound is muted by the cloth. As he passes, a woman pulling water close by to the road looks up at him and thinks, a holy man. Without a pause, he enters the dawn city. Rapidly, the vast Kaiserbach, palace of Wajid Ali Shah, is brought to life once again, evoked is all its obtuse and swaggering magnificence. It bears all unashamed to the sun, the fillets and frets, the thick lintels, the ponderous, brutal columns, the vast vulgar archways, the grotesquely delicate fintels, the uncorrigible domes. 
Further off, the smaller palace of Chata Manzio is revealed. A small bell is heard. The first of the musicians speaks, his voice floating like a vapor over the city from the mosques, whose em those empty palaces of the Supreme One in the country of the many. A few cars appear, where there are few people or none, crowds begin to gather, though still quiet with the white of morning, with the ashes of the last sleep. Whole streets are disturbed as families who slept the night there shake themselves restlessly and get up, cooking at carbon fires or wandering in their days, looking for someone rich enough to beg from. The green and black statues of Queen Victoria stand plump, arrogant, remotely benign, vaguely silly, proof against any kind of mourning. The gardens quicken and stir. The university begins to click with the rapid footsteps of, the, of late students. The sound of sitars being tuned rises from the music school, vying with piano scales and Bach on a violin. The first trains arrive at the central station, the first buses of the day, packed with silent men and obstinate women, bangled girls and grinning boys careen around the luminous, yawning, still wary and uncertain streets. A new day has finally begun. Dara! He wakes abruptly from the nightmare. She isn't beside him. He turns and sits up. Yes, Shukchi. Her sleepy voice comes from the open window, which opens out with a view of the countryside to the east. He can't see her for a moment for the sun. I just had a dream. I couldn't see you for a moment. Yes? He says nothing but stares at her as though furious or frightened. She comes toward him, her shadow blotting out window and sun. But it has been no dream. For days afterward, he lies unconscious, or so they think. He hears everything, his mother's hysterics, his father's voice as it rises and breaks again and again. The doctors, relatives, neighbors, and friends coming to help and leaving helplessly. The terrible, the wonderful thing returns to him over and over. The Raj is dead. Long live the Raj. He is alone once more. He lies with his hands over his face, and through the, his fingers which cover his eyes like the bars of a cage, like a screen of trees, he can see them. He can see the animals. They were walking slowly through the forest. Their progress was halting at best. The brush pricked at them. The trees rose on all sides. The, the sun shone distantly through the leaves. His brother was whimpering and stumbling ahead of him rocking from side to side, his head bent, the dark nape of his neck, winking coolly at the older boy. They reached the edge of the meadow. Ashok had seen in the distance, and the little boy waddled out into the sunlight. Ashok stopped at the edge of the shadows and watched. He was tired. He was just going to call after his brother to stop when he saw the two dog-like animals lying in the weeds, their snouts and ears cocked, staring at Montal as he walked ahead. A cry rose in his throat and stopped. His brother was unaware of them. The animals rose together and loped silently toward him. They stopped and crouched together. Their snouts wove in the air as though catching his scent. Their tails flicked like fly sweeps. One rose and walked a little ahead and crouched. The other rose and crossed the distance between Ashok and Mantal, circling to the other side. They crouched again. For a moment it seemed that all they wanted to do was watch. They were curious that they wanted to play. Montal was almost on the other side to the other side, and he stopped and turned and looked back at his brother. 
Chokji. He started to come back over the meadow. It was then that Ashok heard his father calling for them from the distance. Ashok! Ashok! Antal! His brother halted and looked in the direction the wind was carrying their father's voice. Ashok opened his mouth to cry out and raised his hand to motion him back. And then the animals lunched. Ashok fainted. He did not know who spoke the word that greeted him when he woke later in the back seat of his father's car, and it was much later before he understood its meaning. It was spoken in a low tone, almost in a whisper, the single word, hyenas. His mother was crying hysterically in the front seat next to his father. His father was silent and drove the car very fast to the inrushing twilight. Behind the back seat lay a burlap sack. The car bounced violently as they rode over the rough highway. He was aware of a sense of release from a long torment. He whispered to himself, The Raj is dead. Long live the Raj. Then he saw the shadowy animals circling around his brother. His shoulders began to quiver. It was not his brother in the middle of the sunlit meadow. Now, it was he. He was looking back at himself, who stood at the edge of the forest in the darkness of the trees. He was staring coolly at him in the sunlight, a look of victory opening on his face. Then the weeds rustled, and hot mouths thrust, panting and opened. In this way, the recurring nightmare began as he rode with his parents and the remains of his brother from the countryside home to Lucknow. Day has arrived. The bazaars are alive, ringing with the sound of coin. The streets are jammed and noisy and dusty. The great monuments and buildings are once more veiled in the invisibility of familiarity. The past, in its half-revealed darkness, has retreated a comfortable distance. Like the Himalayas to the north, vast, majestic, relentless, yet somehow inconsequential. The present is making its many various small but inescapable demands. The future lies like a cloud, the thumbprint of a god on the horizon. Yellow and turgid and slow, the Gotima winds through the city toward the holy Ganges and the Bay of Bengal. A monk is bathing along the bank. A cow wreathed in flowers and sounding its small bell ambles across a field near the outskirts of the city. The sun vaults slowly into an almost empty sky. When the beggar with the useless rifle enters the city, he does not pause, but he ceases singing. They come, it is said, from the great surrounding plain that extends from the slopes of the mountains of Nepal to the Ganges, east to, the, to ancient Bengal, the present Bangladesh, and west into flowering Rajasthan. In small, lean packs at first, and then in larger ones, they gather and disperse, regather and wander, at times seemingly at random, at other times apparently with a target long foreseen, a goal acknowledged deeply and deeply shared. They fan out and return, the females catching the scent and leading the males onward. No, they are not without their compass and guard. They are not the scavenger, scavenging nomads of legend. They know a destination and a destiny. They know the city. For which they tend. 
It has taken them much time to catch it, but once caught, it is theirs. Once caught, it is not long before they gather finally there. Once caught, the city named, they long to inhabit it.